Good morning, everybody. How we doing? It is great to see you. If we haven't met, my name is Brian Kiley. Like Eric said, I'm one of the pastors here, serve as director of connections and director of communications and very excited to, uh, to get into what we have uh, to talk about today. Uh, several weeks ago, uh, Pastor Lance shared with us that, that the remainder of 2016 here at Bridgeway is going to be the year of identity, that that's going to be our focus for the rest of the year. And what we've done is we've, ta- we've decided to take several weeks uh, at the start of this year of identity and talk about our core values as a church. Because here's what happened. About a year ago, a group of us, of, of our senior leaders and department heads got together and we just asked this question. We said, okay, we believe that it is the mission of every church on the planet, every church on our city, in our city, every church everywhere to glorify God and make disciples. And we want to support and encourage and be, and be excited about any church that does that. Uh, but that's everybody's mission. So, but how has God in particular uh, formed us as Bridgeway to glorify God and make disciples? How has God made us unique to be a part of that mission and vision? So, so from that process, from the conversation that went on, and we came up with five core values. And we've, been ta- we've talked about three of them so far, and we're going to hit the fourth one today. Just to review, and you might want to write these down, just as you can. We want everyone to kind of lock these in and know what our core values are here at Bridgeway. Uh, Pastor Lance started the series by talking to us about knowing God. And here at Bridgeway, we define that as saying, we want to have an intimate, accurate, growing relationship with God. And as Lance said when he gave the message about that core value, he said, all of our other core values, you can kind of put them in whatever order you want. But really, knowing God has to be first. Knowing God has to be first, because it all starts with knowing God. And then our second core value, Pastor Parnell talked to us about loving generously. And we define that saying, we want to be joyfully demonstrating God's abundant love. And as God has been outrageously generous with us beyond anything we could ever hope to deserve, we want to be a a people in a faith community that is just outrageously generous with others, uh, demonstrating to them the love that God has shown us. And then last week, uh, or excuse me, two weeks ago, Pastor Lance talked about building family. We said we want to be about nurturing healthy relationships in homes and in the family of God. And that means whether you're, you're married or single, rich or poor, whether you've got lots of kids or a few kids or you're an empty nester or you've got kids and wish you didn't have kids, well, you know, whatever, or you're in any other season of life, we want your family, whatever that looks like for you, to be healthy. And, and then beyond that, we want you to know your place in the family of God and we want to be a healthy and growing family together. And this morning, this weekend, it's my privilege to talk about our fourth core value, and it's this. Our fourth core value is developing disciples. Developing disciples. And to us, that means we want to be about maturing and mobilizing followers of Jesus. Maturing and mobilizing followers of Jesus. Uh, see, a disciple, which let's just be honest, disciple is not a word that it gets used much in our world outside of, of, of church world. But a disciple is simply a learner or a student. It's not an especially complicated word. And at Bridgeway, we want to be a church full of people who have not only been saved by Jesus, but who have also enrolled in the school of Jesus so that we might become like him. I titled the message Jesus School because we want to be people that are in the school of Jesus to learn from him. Or to put it differently, we want to be apprentices of Jesus. 
Jesus, who study his character and his competencies so that we can begin to develop his character and competencies in our own lives. There's a brilliant philosopher by the name of Dallas Willard, who I'm going to quote several times today. He's written extensively on the subject of discipleship, and he says this. He says, disciples of Jesus are people who do not just profess certain views as their own. In other words, they're not just people who believe certain things, though that's part of it, but they apply their growing understanding of life in the kingdom of the heavens to every aspect of their life on earth. And that's who we want to be. We want to be a community of disciples who are encountering God's truth. And from those encounters with God's truth, we're changing our lives and changing the way that we approach everything from the big decisions to the seemingly ordinary moments of life. If you want to grab the handout you received when you walked in the front door, uh, I want to talk about the fill in the blank briefly. And and the fill in the blank is just two statements that are very simple, but they're absolutely vital for us if we are going to have a fruitful conversation about discipleship, if we're going to be enthusiastic, wholehearted students of Jesus Christ. There's two things we must know. And And I believe these two statements, they are incredibly good news together, but I actually don't think they're very good news on their own. We have to understand both of them. The, t- the two statements are, are, are these. Number one, you are accepted. And you can change. Number one, you are accepted. And number two, you can change. I think about the amazing words that the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, where he wrote, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But I received mercy for this reason. I was accepted, he says, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul Paul says, I was accepted. And God, by his mercy, was patient with me as I began to change. I'm accepted, he says, and by the power of Jesus working in me, I can change. Jesus came to save sinners, Paul says. So, so that when you and I, we, we look at our failures and we, we look at our garbage and we, we look at the stuff that we hope no one ever finds out about, we can see that and we, just, we realize that we're sinners and that Jesus came to save us and not condemn us. That Jesus came to pay for our sin so that we can be accepted. But, but the problem is, let's just be honest, that so often we don't believe that. We, we believe we need to get our act together before we can be accepted. Or, or, or we, think, we, we, think this, we think when we come to church, we're the only one, I'm the only one with issues and everybody else is okay. I can tell you what, it's at least you and me. We both have issues. I don't know about everyone else. No, the truth is we all have issues. We all have brokenness. And we fall into this trap of thinking that we're the only ones who, who struggle. So what do we do? We feel like we have to fake it in order to be accepted. But, but the truth is this, when we come together as the body of Christ, listen, it, it's okay to not be okay. I'm going to say that again, just to make sure you heard me. It's okay to not be okay. That you're accepted. You're accepted. And Jesus, Jesus didn't say, uh, come to me, all of you with perfectly pressed shirts and well-behaved children, and I will nod approvingly. <laughs> no, come on. He, he said, come to me, all you who, who labor and are, are heavy laden, and I will give you 
rest. You're accepted. At the cross of Jesus Christ, there is acceptance for you. There's forgiveness for you. There's a a Savior who invites you to know Him. You're accepted. And not only are you accepted, but you can change. And it's critical that we, we get these two ideas together. Because because if you accept me, but 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 there's nothing in, in you or nothing, nothing that challenges me to change, I would argue that that's not love. And I'm going to say more about that in a second. But, but the flip side of that is if I don't think you accept me, but I'm being challenged to change, that is going to create a massive amount of insecurity in me. Because I don't know, I, I, I'm nervous, I don't know, do you accept me? I don't know, am I good enough for you? I'm going to wonder, am I performing up to your standards? Am I doing enough? Because here, here's the problem, I'm going to be defensive about my flaws if I don't feel accepted. Because there's always going to be this fear in me that if my flaws are revealed, then I, then I won't be accepted. If my flaws are revealed, you, you might condemn me, you might reject me, right? I, 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 can't, I, I can't even, here's the thing, I, I can't even be open to my need for change without being accepted. But when we know we're accepted, that opens us up to just be honest about our flaws. When I know I'm accepted, I can be honest about facing the brokenness inside of me. I can, I can be honest that there's junk in my heart that's, that's dishonoring to God and that hurts me and hurts the people I love and that that junk's got to go. Because see, listen, what you and I need, we don't need to be told that our flaws aren't a big deal. We, we, that might make us feel good for a moment, but that's not what we need. That, that's not love. Well, what we need to be told is that there is a, a God in heaven who loves us so much that he accepts us just as we are. And more than that, he loves us so much that he invites us to change. He loves us so much that he invites us to become like him. He loves us so much to say the, the brokenness you're experiencing, the, the flaws that you're experiencing, that the issues you have that are just, that are jacking your life in so many different ways, those don't have to be the last word in your life. You can change. That's real love. That's, that's discipleship. You're accepted and you can change. And if you look at the life of Jesus, we see these two statements play out very early in his ministry. There's a, a famous scene in, in Mark chapter 1 where Jesus finds Simon and Andrew out fishing. And, and what does he say to them? He says, come and follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. There, there's acceptance. Come, follow me. I, I invite you into relationship. And I will make you become fishers of men. You're going to become something. We're actually going to do something. You're going to change. So when we say we want to be about developing disciples, maturing and mobilizing followers of Jesus, that means we want to be a a, a church where we know that we're accepted. That, That under the banner of God's grace, there is acceptance for us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that from that place of acceptance, we're invited to pursue maturity. From that place of acceptance, we're invited to enroll in Jesus' school to become like him in his character and his competency. We we want to be people who answer Jesus' invitation into a life of discipleship. But, But understand me, we don't answer that call with our mouths. We answer that call with our lives. But here's the thing, we, we get this, this call to discipleship wrong in a, 
a couple of different ways. Number one, so some of us who are just, <coughs> excuse me, very task oriented, very, you know, want to get things done, sort of the high achieving types, we, we end up seeing discipleship as an obligation, that we need to do good things so that we can be accepted. We need to do good things so we can appear good to those around us. We need to do good things so that God will be proud of us and this and that and the other things. And that's just not how it works. <laughs> It's just not. We have to understand that the call to discipleship, it's an invitation, not an obligation. And if we're viewing it as an obligation, we've just, we've got it wrong. It's not a means by which we earn acceptance. It's something we, we pursue from a place of acceptance. But then so many of us, we get it wrong on the other side too. We, we treat discipleship like it's an optional add-on to a life of faith. Uh, Many of us make a life of faith more about feeling than about action. I'll give you just kind of some, some, some silly examples. So, so I think the way that, the way that a lot of us, that we talk about like church services and sermons and things like that, it's just, it's kind of strange to me. So, so I'll hear things like this, like someone will, will hear a, a teaching and they'll say something like, man, did you hear the sermon this weekend? He killed it. Killed what? Do we need to alert some authority? What happened here, right? Or, or man, did you hear her? Did you hear her, her, her talk? Man, she crushed it. Like, it's a bug. It's, it's a sermon, not a bug. <laughs> you know, she crushed it. What, was, what does that mean? Why the violent words? I don't understand. You know? but, but here's my point. O- oftentimes, we devote more thought and energy to what we thought about a sermon than what we should do about the sermon. And, and just think about, again, some of the language we use when we talk about church or talk about sermons or other than this, this you know, killing it and crushing it stuff. Well, we say, oh, man, that was, that was so good. Or, man, man, that was so deep. Man, that was, that was deep. That, see, see, that was deep. That's translation for, man, that really made me think, and I'm so glad I don't have to do anything about it. That's, that's what that was deep means. Or, or, or we say things like, I was so convicted. And listen, feeling this way is not the problem. Uh, liking sermons is not the problem. I, I, you know, hey, I hope that you think this one's at least okay, right? Like, it's not a bad thing to enjoy sermons. The problem is when we have all these feelings, but nothing changes. And by the way, how do I know that this happens? That we get all excited about something we hear and then nothing changes. How do I know this? Because I've done it about 11,000 times. I'm an expert at getting inspired and doing nothing about it, and I don't want to be that way. Because when we look at the life of Jesus, we see the opposite. In the passage we just looked at, Jesus doesn't say, hey, come and follow me and you're going to be really convicted. He says, no, come follow me and you're going to change. Come follow me and you're going to change. Or when Jesus first shows up on the scene, even earlier in Mark chapter 1, what does he say? He says, repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent, change your way of thinking. That's what that word means. Literally change your mind and believe. Act on what you have heard. That's what that word means in Greek. So he says, change your way of thinking and act based on that changed thinking. There's no talk about being convicted or moved or all of that stuff. He just says, repent and believe. Or, or consider a very famous story in the New Testament, the story of the rich young ruler. It's found in a number of places, uh, including Luke chapter 18. Well, what happens, if you're not familiar with the story, is, is, is this guy comes to Jesus. And he comes to Jesus and he says, hey, uh, Jesus, as you can see, I'm rich, I'm young, and I'm a ruler. Don't I just have it all? And yet, for some reason, there's this emptiness in me that I, I can't really get a hold of. And I hear you talking about this new way of living, this new approach to life, this, this life of the ages is what your followers are calling it. How can I tap into that life? How can I live in that way? 
And they go back and forth a little bit, and Jesus eventually says to him, well, see, here's the thing. One thing you lack, go sell everything you had and follow me. Go sell everything you had, give it to the poor and follow me. And it says that the man went away sad because he had great wealth, with the implication being he didn't want to do anything about it. And, and, and I want to point out to you what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say, hey, 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 Simon, Peter, Andrew, come, come, look, look at this guy. See that guy walking away sad? The guy really sad but not doing anything? Yeah, he's so convicted. It's awesome. <laughs> Love how convicted that guy is. Yeah, he's not doing anything, but man, man, is he convicted. So this is awesome. No, he doesn't say that. What does he say? Luke chapter 18, verse 24. Seeing that he had become sad. uh, In other words, seeing that there was conviction without life change. He said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What's he saying? Jesus is saying that this is a tragic story because this man is a picture of conviction without action. At the end of the day, he's interested. His, this guy's particular issue was he was interested in Jesus, but he loved his money more. And Jesus said, that's going to be a problem. Because as long as that's true, you might get convicted, but you're not going to change anything. It's, it's heartbreaking. And then compare that to what happens in the very next chapter. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus meets a man named Zacchaeus. Uh, this is another very famous story. And What happens in that story is, so Zacchaeus is, by any measurable definition, he is a dirtbag, okay? Like, nobody likes Zacchaeus because he's a crooked tax collector that steals people's money. Not a great way to win a popularity contest. So what happens is, Zacchaeus hears that Jesus is coming to his town. Zacchaeus was vertically challenged, so he climbs on a tree so he can see him above the crowds. And what does Jesus do? He comes to Zacchaeus and says, hey, Zacchaeus, come on down. You and I need to have a talk. I'm going to go and spend some time in your house today. And everybody else, all these people that hate Zacchaeus, they see this going on and they start getting all judgy and like, Jesus, really? Zacchaeus? Why are you talking with him? What's going on? But they end up going to Zacchaeus' house. And scripture doesn't record what they talked about. But they have a conversation. And Zacchaeus is so moved by his experience with Jesus that what does he say? Luke chapter 19, verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. In other words, Zacchaeus is saying to Jesus, I want to change. See, he's experienced acceptance in his brokenness. And he says, I want to change. I'm going to repent and believe. (laughs) I want to change. And again, I want you to notice what Jesus does not say here. He does not say, whoa, 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 hey, hey, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus. I appreciate the enthusiasm, but let's, you know, let's take it down a notch here. You you don't need to go do all that. You just need to feel convicted. That's all the word convict will call it good. Or you know maybe what you could do is you could go out outside, go outside, see all those people out there. Tell them how great this talk we had was. Tell them I killed it. And then we're good. You don't need to actually do anything. No, he doesn't say that at all. At all. What does he say? He says, verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus accepted in his brokenness, and then he changed. It's discipleship. 
And Jesus celebrated it. That's the sort of life that you and I are called to. But, but again, too often we settle for so much less than that. Here's what we do, if you will humor me with another silly example. There was a movie that came out during my freshman year of college called Zoolander. How many of you have seen it and are willing to admit it? I love the smiles I see when I simply say that word. It's wonderful. Uh, in case you haven't seen it because you are more mature than me... Uh, here's the story, if you can even call it that, uh, revolves around Derek Zoolander, played by Ben Stiller. And, and, and Derek Zoolander is a male model who has made quite a nice living for himself being really, really, really ridiculously good-looking. That's, that's his life, okay? And, and partway through the movie... It was a comedy, by the way, in case. Like, this isn't like a biopic or, you know, this is not a drama or a deep sort of thing. He starts to have this sort of crisis of meaning in his life. He has this crisis of meaning where he starts to think maybe instead of just being professionally good looking, he needs to do more with his life. And I know, I know, we've all been there. And at one point, he says to his agent, and I'm not going to try to impersonate his voice because that would be a trauma from which you would not soon recover. But he says this, he says, the other day I was thinking about volunteering to help teach underprivileged children to learn how to read. And just thinking about it was the most rewarding experience I've ever had. Just thinking about it was the most rewarding experience I've ever had. But come on, how often do we do that? We hear something and we get inspired and just thinking about changing is so rewarding that we do nothing, right? We imagine being full-fledged followers of Jesus, but just thinking about it is so inspiring that we do nothing. And, And by the way, I call that the Zoolander effect, and I've been talking about it for years, but something I just learned very recently that was fascinating to me is that there is a mountain of research that, that shows that the, the chemical release that happens in the brain when we just talk about doing something great or we talk about big lofty goals is very similar to the chemical release that happens from when we actually do something great or we actually achieve a goal. So we don't have to actually do anything. We just have to think about it and talk about it and that makes some things happen up here. What, what is that? It's a Zoolander effect. It's the Zoolander effect. And that's exactly the opposite of what we're called to do. Jesus says we're accepted. And he invites us not to think about changing. not Not to just sort of feel good about ourselves because we want to change. But to actually change. He invites us to be people who are actually growing to be more like him in our character and in our competency. And listen, if we're going to be a church that embraces our mission statement of equipping one another to bring the wholeness of Jesus to a broken world, we can't settle for Zoolander effect faith. We have to be a church full of people who are developing as disciples, who can develop disciples, who can develop disciples, who can develop disciples. And understand... For, for you and I to enroll in Jesus' school, if you, if you and I are going to be all in in this sort of life, there is a cost. Jesus himself said in a very famous verse in Luke chapter 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And let's just be honest, self-denial is a quality we really, really like in other people. We're not so sure if it's good for, uh, I know, I love it in other people. 
But we're just not so sure if it's good for us. But here's what we have to understand. When Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, don't miss this. When Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, he's not talking about just sort of, uh, sort of pointless deprivation. Right? He's certainly not calling us to a life of misery for the glory of God. Right? Rather, he is calling us to voluntarily relinquish anything that would keep us from knowing him most fully. In other words, he's asking us to put down the Skittles because he has a gourmet feast for us. And and consider that, that yes, there is a cost to discipleship. I want to suggest to you that the cost of non-discipleship is much greater. The cost of, of a Zoolander effect faith that is only about feelings that make us feel good and not actually growing to be more like Christ is far greater. To quote Dallas Willard again, he says, Non-discipleship costs abiding peace. It costs a life penetrated throughout by love. In short, non-discipleship costs you exactly that abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring. And now listen to this. He says, the cross-shaped yoke of Jesus, submission to Jesus Christ, is after all an instrument of liberation and power to those who live in it with him and learn the meekness and lowliness of heart that bring rest to the soul. It's liberation and power. Well, actually, following Jesus cost you something. Of course it will. Find me anything of value in your life that didn't cost you something. But, but understand, the cost of not following Jesus is far greater. And the payoff of following Jesus, even just in this life, and the, the peace that he brings, and the purpose that he brings, and the, the mission that he calls us to, the payoff is so great that to say it is worth it is like saying Mount Everest is tall. It is the understatement of all understatements. And, 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 and so, for that reason... May I be abundantly clear in saying that Bridgeway Christian Church is not a place to come and passively receive religious goods and services. Bridgeway Christian Church is a place to come and to be made into a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's a place to come and be accepted wherever you are, whatever questions you have, whatever baggage you came in, it does not matter. It is a place to be accepted. And from that place of acceptance, it's a place to be a part of a community that is changing together. I think about the words of Paul from Colossians 1, where he says, Him we proclaim, being Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That that's, that's what it's about. We want to be mature in Christ. Are, are we there yet? Absolutely not. Or will we be, we won't be fully uh, there on this side of heaven, but, but until that day comes, we want to be a community of people who under the banner of God's grace are seeking to become more like Jesus. So, so then what does discipleship to Jesus look like? Hundreds of books have been written on the subject. I can hardly give an exhaustive uh, description in, in the 12 or 15 minutes that I have left here. But I just want to give you three critical components to discipleship. Three critical elements of the curriculum in Jesus' school that we simply must get if we're going to grow in the character and competency of Jesus. Number one, <clears throat> discipleship is about training not trying. What do I mean by that? Discipleship is about training, not 
trying. The point of discipleship is not to try really hard to be a good Christian. Which I don't even know what that... I've been a Christian for, for most of my life and a pastor for 10 years. I don't know what that statement means. Try to be a good Christian. It doesn't make any sense to me. The point is to live lives of intentional training where we're growing more and more in the character and competency of Jesus. And, and understand this. You and I are being trained all the time. The question is, what are we being trained in. Whose image are we being formed into? For, for, for example, I don't know if you're like me in this way, but I've just found that I'm very sensitive to the media that I, uh, that I engage with or the media that I consume. So, so silly example is several years ago, I started watching this show, uh, where it was a show about a big family and like all they did was argue, just constant arguing. Uh, I found the show just emotionally exhausting to watch because there's just so much arguing that went on. But here's the thing. More than that, I found myself becoming more argumentative. I found myself becoming like snippy with my wife and just sort of smart alecky in general. And just like my my personality is I really don't like to argue, especially about petty things like let's 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 all just get along like let's be cool. And all of a sudden I found that this was changing my behavior because I was watching this show where people did nothing but argue. I quit watching the show. Like I don't want to be that. Uh, or, or another example is, uh, not long after I started working at Bridgeway, I started watching, uh, this sort of political drama that takes place in Washington DC where there's lots of like investigating and, you know, there's crimes going on and people trying to, you know, sneak around and this and that and da 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 da. And, and what happened was one day at work, I, I left my, my work area to go use the restroom and within about five seconds, the first, uh, completely unfiltered thought that went through my mind was this, oh no, I can't leave my computer unattended. Somebody might get my secret files. (laughs) And then I remembered, I don't have any secret files. (laughs) And nobody is trying to get me that I know of. (laughs) Right? But listen, 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 listen. You might not be as sensitive as I am. But understand, you and I are being trained all the time by the shows we watch, by the things we listen to, by the voices that we allow to have access to us. I came across a brilliant quote by a pastor in Southern California named Larry Osborne. Uh, He says this, What we focus on determines what we become. If what we're listening to, watching, or reading isn't making us more like Christ, we're not getting informed. We're getting duped. We're getting trained in something else other than Christ's likeness. Uh, What we focus on determines what we become. What we focus on determines what we are trained into. Uh, Where is your focus? Whose image are you being formed into? Uh, Paul writes in probably my favorite verse in the whole Bible, 1 Timothy 4.7. I want to read it and the verse that follows. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise in the present life and the life to come. Train yourself for godliness. Engage yourself in a rhythm of life that prepares you to live in the character and competency of Jesus. You can can think about it this way. If I were to say, okay, as soon as the service is over today, uh, we're all going to go sign sign the concrete down at the new facility, but uh, we're actually, we're all going to run down there. I'm going to snap my fingers and you'll all be in athletic clothes and we're just going to run. It's about maybe two, two and a half miles. We're going to run down there and then we're going to run back. Some of us 
might try really hard and get really frustrated. Some of us might say, you know what, forget it. <laughs> I'm out. You know? But some of us might try really hard and get really frustrated because we can't do it. But the ones of us that would be able to do it and do it well without too much problem are, are who? Those who have made physical training a regular part of their lives. Those who have just made, it's a discipline of their life that they're training physically so they're ready when, when things like that happen. It works the same way with, with spiritual training. The idea is that, that we're investing ourselves in just the time-honored practices of studying the scriptures, of, of reading good books, of getting around mature followers of Jesus who can help us grow, that with any engaging with the Lord in prayer, that coming together for worship, this is training. Right? And it trains us to be people so that when life, the situations of life, ask us to do radical things like love our enemies or pray for those who persecute us or put to death envy and slander, we're ready. We're ready. And I don't know about you, none of those things come natural to me. I need to be trained in them. So, so the point of discipleship is to be trained it's being schooled in radical christian values so we can exercise them and live them out when life requires it and and understand this training does require some effort to quote dallas willard again he says grace is not opposed to effort it's opposed to earning that earning is an attitude effort is an action Because you have to understand that that God forgives us by his grace. He calls us to himself by his grace. He calls us sons and daughters of his by his grace. He grants us eternal life by his grace. There's nothing we can do to earn those things. But understand also that he empowers us by his grace to become more like him. He empowers us by his grace to grow in his character and his competency. He makes it possible, but it requires some effort on our part. And it's, and it's not effort we exert with the goal of, of earning religious brownie points or of appearing more moral. It's effort we exert with the goal of demonstrating the character and competency of Jesus. It's training for godliness. And, and understand that this is the beautiful thing about it, is anyone can train Anyone can train, uh, regardless of your current state of spiritual fitness or flabbiness, anyone can train. Whether you're a spiritual Iron Man or you're just like, I, I need like the couch to 5K plan, like what do, I, what do I do? That plan exists, right? And anyone can train. It's about training, not trying. Number two, discipleship is about information and imitation. Information and imitation. Part of becoming a disciple is learning information. It's learning biblical truth. It's learning right doctrine. It's understanding what does the Bible actually say. I mean, we live in a world where there's all sorts of religious ideas and philosophies, and they're just, they're not, I'm not trying to be judgmental, but they're just not all the same. Right? We have to understand what does the Bible actually say? What is, what is true about God? What is, what is the character and competency of, of Jesus. Uh, for some of us who are new to faith, uh, we have a lot of studying to do. We need to study our Bibles. We need to, to grab a couple of good books. I'm happy to recommend some if you want some. You know, we need to learn. We need to get dialed in on the basics of Christianity. Or, or some of us who have been followers of Jesus for a long time, I mean, there's just, there's always more to learn. If, if Jesus is a diamond, there's always a new way to kind of, kind of turn him and see things we didn't see before. I- information is a critical part of discipleship what we're doing right now the teaching and preaching of the word of god is a critical part of discipleship but understand it's not everything not by a long shot that a critical part of discipleship is imitation and we know this to be true by the way in all sorts of different areas of life 
For example, there is no book you can read that will adequately prepare you to be a brain surgeon. Like there's no TED talk you can watch or like, you know, maybe an online course about, you know, basics of brain surgery, right? Do do aspiring neurosurgeons read lots of books and listen to lots of lectures and all that? Of course they do. But you know what else they do? They spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours with competent brain surgeons who they can imitate, competent surgeons who can who can teach them. It's true in medical school and it's true in Jesus school that that imitation is critical. Being around others who can help us grow is critical. And I want you to know just things we've talked about here at Bridgeway and just so you all know that this is coming, that we're right now, in in fact, during this service, uh, there's a meeting going on where a hundred leaders are being trained to lead smaller communities where life-on-life discipleship can happen. And you heard Lance talk about it. We had another set of meetings to recruit more people to train. And and we're confident that out of those meetings, at least a hundred, maybe more folks are going to get trained up to lead these smaller communities because we understand that while the preaching of the word is critical, that discipleship really happens in life-on-life environments where we can just imitate one another, where we can grow, where we can find people more mature than us, and we can learn how to follow Jesus from them. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says to Timothy, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. He doesn't say, hey, Timothy, here's Paul's book of discipleship. Go ahead and read it, and then you'll be a disciple of Jesus. He says, no, you've spent time with me. So you, you've spent time with me. You've learned from me. So now, I want you to take what you've learned. I want you to teach others. And I want you to teach others who teach others. I want you to just spend time together in just organic time where you can transfer the things that I've taught you. That's discipleship. It's It's imitation. You have to understand that solo discipleship, discipleship we do on our own, has a major lid. And community busts through that lid. Opportunities for imitation bust through that lid. So discipleship is about training and not trying. It's about information and imitation. And finally, it's about the core character trait that we see in Jesus. And this one's so important that I only have one word. I don't have two and of everything we've talked about today, if, if we can, can get this dialed in, and I know I have so, so much room to grow in this area, if we can get this dialed in, it would change our lives and change the world. We, we need to, the discipleship is about the core character trait that we see in Jesus, and that's humility. Humility. Discipleship is about humility. C- consider with me Philippians chapter 2. I want to start reading in verse 1, but we'll kind of focus on verses 5 through 8. He says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. In other words, if you have been moved by God's acceptance of you in Christ, that's what he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And he says this in in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In, In other words, a mind that does not do things out of selfish ambition, a mind that considers others as more important than themselves. Have this mind, Paul says, this mind that is available to you 
in Christ. I mean, we, we talk about maturing and mobilizing followers of Jesus. A mature follower of Jesus is humble. You cannot be a mature follower of Jesus and not be humble. And a mature follower of Jesus then humbly lives their life in front of others as they seek to love others. That's the mobilization part. And and I want to tell you that in a world where we are bombarded with communication, don't miss this, in a world where we are bombarded in communication but starving for connection, it is through the demonstration of humble, selfless, compassionate Christian love that we will most show our allegiance to Jesus Christ in a way that is priceless and attractive to those who don't yet know him. So let's continue. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, he said, for though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If we want to talk about the character and competency of Jesus. Character in particular. There it is. Humility. Jesus, who was worthy of of all of the praise and adoration that the, the universe could muster, willingly surrendered it and became humble. He made himself nothing. He became utterly unconcerned with his own reputation and utterly obsessed with serving others. He didn't demand his rights. He willingly surrendered them and it cost him his life and all he did was change the world all he did was change the course of human history and and, and understand this there's 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 a lot of talk these days and i know there's been plenty of talk about this in prior generations but lots of talk about things like this that that christians need to take a stand In in our world that is so hostile to Christianity, Christians need to take a stand. We need to to stand up for what we believe in. And I agree with that in principle. But here's the problem. When we use words like take a stand, what we usually mean is is we need to argue with people who don't agree with us. Or, Or what it usually means is we need to demand more respect and more influence. Understand, I mean no disrespect, but that is how our culture takes a stand. That is what it means to take a stand culturally. Look at the passage that we just read. Jesus went all the way to the cross to make his enemies his friends. That's how Christians take stands. Through humble, suffering, sacrificial love. So if you want to take a stand for Jesus, and I hope you do, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you want to take a stand for Jesus, love your enemies instead of arguing with them. Which, by the way, that's another quality we love in other people, loving your enemies. We're just not so sure about it for ourselves. If you want to take a stand for Jesus, pray for those who persecute you and don't lash out against them. If you want to take a stand for Jesus, be so outrageously generous with somebody who could never hope to repay you that they're just left wondering what was that if you want to take a stand for jesus love and serve your spouse and love and serve your children it's the most important ministry you'll ever do if you want to take a stand for jesus forgive someone if you want to take a stand for jesus choose the path of humble sacrificial love 
when everything in you wants to stand up and argue for your case. Make no mistake about it. <clears throat> the path of discipleship is, an, is not an ascending path towards greater and greater prestige, but it's a descending path towards greater and greater service. But I'm telling you, on that path, there is life. And, and, and understand this too, that, that God doesn't need you to fight for him. He's God. Like, he's, he's, he's got this. But if we read what the scriptures say and we see what the scriptures have to tell us about what our part in all of this is, God doesn't need you to fight for him, but he does need you to humbly love others the way he has loved you. So, at the core of any understanding of discipleship are two critical truths. You are accepted and you can change. And then the process of discipleship is about training, not trying. It's about information and imitation. It's about humility. And as we, we wrap up just for, for another minute or two, just imagine with me for a moment a world in which we got this right. And, and I know I have so much room to grow in everything I've said to you today. But, but imagine for a moment, what if we got this right? Imagine what if every single one of us was so sure at the core of our beings that we have been accepted by God in Christ, that we didn't live our lives just desperately seeking the approval and acceptance of others, but could instead focus on, on loving others and sharing that acceptance. What if, what if every single one of us knew that the spirit of the living God lived inside of us and because of that we can change? What if, what if every single one of us was so committed to training ourselves in the way of Jesus? What if we paid attention to things that made us more like Christ and we ignored voices that would teach us to hate and divide? What if we took seriously spiritual disciplines like Bible study, prayer, worship, and fellowship because we know those are the practices that make us strong? What if we knew right doctrine, but we were also in such deep community with one another that we had opportunity to imitate the lives of, of, of those who were a few steps ahead of us and imitate our lives before those who were a few steps behind us. What if discipleship was happening in, in homes and coffee shops and parks all over the city uh, as bridgewayers got together with their friends and neighbors just to spend time together and build community and learn from one another? What if What if we lived in such a way that when absolutely anyone heard the term evangelical Christian, the only thing that came to their mind was humble servant? What if every time a public figure or media outlet did something offensive to Christians, we treated them the way Jesus has treated us as we have been offensive to him by loving them until it hurts? What if we as people accepted God's amazing invitation to grow in the character and competency of Jesus. Let me ask you something. Do you think that would change things? Do, do, do you think that would change things? Because I sure do. Let's pray and ask God that it would be so. Father, we're grateful for this time together. We're grateful that we're accepted God, I pray for each and every one of my brothers and sisters here today, those watching online, those listening to this later. God, would we know that by grace, through faith in Jesus, we are accepted. We're accepted. There's, there's nothing for us to try to earn.
And God, may we also embrace this beautiful reality that you invite us to change, not to try to earn anything, but so that we can become more like you. So God, I pray that Bridgeway Christian Church would be a community that is about developing disciples, that is about maturing and mobilizing followers of Jesus. God, that is a corporate core value that applies to everyone, but it's also a very personal core value that applies to each one of us. So may we individually, with our lives, answer the call to discipleship. May we be utterly unsatisfied with good feelings and motivational thoughts. And may we seek to follow you on the path of discipleship because we love you and we know that in following you, there is life. Thank you for your grace that saves us and thank you for your grace that empowers us on this journey. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.